Welcome to episode three of Texy, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and the other bloke, Jason Roberts. Hi, Jason. How you doing, guys? And today we have our first guest, Sam Howley, um, all the way from uh, Canberra in Australia, of QuerySale.com. Hi, Sam. G'day, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on Texy. If anyone at home wants to comment on anything we're talking about, uh, just go to trim, that's tr.im forward slash techzing3, uh, which is specifically for this episode. So Jason, I know you had, you had some thoughts and questions for Sam. Well, I'm just real interested. So you found Sam because um, you posted a, I guess you posted on Joel and Software saying, hey, we're looking for people to interview, people yeah. to talk to as guests. And um, Sam was, uh, Sam actually responded. Is, is that right? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I've been listening to the uh, Stack Overflow podcast and uh, the Venture Voice podcast and various other um, uh, software and software business podcasts. And uh, when I saw uh, the link to Texing, I checked it out. I thought it was very interesting and I enjoyed listening to the previous podcasts. And, uh, and yeah, I'm starting a software business and I'm writing software. So when I saw an invitation for guests, I thought uh, that'd be interesting. Okay, so so let's let's hear right now. So that your your product or uh, your software is called uh, Query Cell. Is that correct? Is that right? Um, yep, I've got a product called Query Cell um, and another product called Quiz Night Chief. Um, Query Cell basically just allow, or allows you to query uh, Excel data using SQL inside the Excel application. So it basically gives you a little um, SQL client uh, panel inside Excel, so you can write your write and run SQL statements. That's a clever idea, and, and I'm just kind of surprised that no one had done that before. I mean, it's kind of almost seems obvious that that would be useful. That, that's a very good point, and exactly the same thing occurred to me, and I'm not exactly sure. Perhaps Microsoft um, uh, doesn't really want to integrate SQL and Excel because then they're competing with Access. Um, right. Yeah, I'm not sure. But then nobody really uses Access for anything. Or Okay, I should say that, but it's not <laughs> nearly as widely used as Excel, right? I mean, Excel is is the kind of thing that huge numbers of people use as sort of an ad hoc database. So there's tons of enterprise and personal and business data in Excel. In Excel is overused. I mean, I, I've been in so many situations where people use Excel for project management purposes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. This is... This is very true. I think um, there's obviously some some issues with with um, manipulating data in Excel that we as technical people are very aware of. So, ju just the lack of the normal uh, normalization type process and the relational constraints. So, you know, you can have different types in the same column. You can have duplicate rows. You can have multiple values in the same cell. Um, there's no foreign key constraints. All these kind of things that are really powerful things to us that we understand. Well, without those. You, you, you possibly can get yourself into some problems. But for the most majority of people out there, just the ability to get the data in and manipulate it without having to get a schema created, without having to deal with uh, a, an enterprise-level database or, or a database of any kind, is just a huge benefit. So um, I think while Excel obviously has, a, has some issues for sort of the technology professionals, for, the, for, for normal people, it's a fantastic tool. And is, I think with... Is it beyond um, beta at the moment? I mean, is it, is it on sale? It is indeed on sale. Yes. Has anyone have any any customers yet? I mean, because I know you're very early in the game, so. Uh, yep, we have customers. It started off slowly, um, but I'm I'm quite happy with that. I mean, from everything I read, it's just the natural way of things. Yeah. It's a bit like, I think there's a rule that says things will take longer than you expect, even if you take that rule into account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind I kind of feel with with software, it's like marketing will be more important than you think 
even if you take that into account. And I was telling myself, marketing, marketing. And then when it went on sale, I was like, wow, marketing. Right. How how long has it been on sale for? Um, About three weeks. And how long did it take when, before you get your first customer? Yeah. Uh, a week. A week. So you're sitting there and you're just like, every, every day goes by and there's nothing. You just start sweating like, oh God, <laughs> is anyone <laughs> going to care about this thing? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's going to be terrifying, right? Yeah. It's just like, and then you get one customer. <laughs> what did you do when you got the first customer? Uh, went out to dinner. Very happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Break open the champagne. Let me guess, the champagne cost 50 bucks, but the sale was for 10 bucks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now you're selling it was like seventy nine or something. Is that what's the price? Seventy nine dollars. Sixty nine. Sixty nine. And um, so that's fantastic. Now, did you start to see it start to accelerate a little bit after? I mean, obviously it's three weeks, so you don't have much data, but then you get a few more after that. Uh, uh, not really. It's been quite slow. Um, okay. It's been a yeah slow growth, but I do see I do see growth happening. So that's enough to keep me smiling for the moment. But I would hey, well that's, that that's the same. That's oh, the way sorry. it is for our, our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like we're in the third episode, so we're I'm, I'm constantly looking at Libsyn to go. Okay, how many downloads we got? How many iTunes subscriptions do we have? And you know, you're you're waiting for that sort of takeoff moment, but I, I think it's just going to take a little while. We're just going to have to keep putting content out there and keep keep working and creating. Just an talking about that that software. Just one thing is, I would have thought that given that it's such a niche there must be people around the world who have the pain who need that product and it's just a question of working out how to get to those people with with the pain that you you can answer you know i think you're absolutely right justin and i think um that that's the marketing challenge with that particular product i think um a lot there's a lot of criticism of selling products to a technical audience people say like oh, if you sell tools to developers developers yeah. are the kind of people who will make their own tools and things like that but yeah. the flip side is that it's quite easy to get to developers. I mean, if, if you get a, a link to, to whatever it is you're doing on the top page of Reddit or Dig or Hacker News or one of those sites, you're going to get a lot of the audience hitting it. But if you were writing software for, I don't know, people managing uh, health centers or people um, or, or doctors who specialize in, in the feet or something, then there is no website where 300,000 of them hang out. Well, so how did, you, um, how did you first come up with the idea? Uh, basically, it was a kind of uh, scratch your own itch type thing in that um, I've done a lot of work with databases and large, very large databases. And it seems uh, wherever I go, no matter how um, sophisticated the, the organization is, there's always someone who's got some important data sitting in an Excel spreadsheet. Right. And um, hmm. in, in terms of migrating it, in terms of manipulating it, I just, uh, as someone who knows SQL, uh, it's such a great tool to be sitting in a program dealing with data and not have access to it is a bit frustrating. So I thought, surely we can uh, do something about this. Now, uh, you, you said, uh, now you built, I think you said mentioned something in a, in a, you built it in Delphi, is that right? That's correct. Now, is that, is, is that, now it's interesting because Delphi is, is um, I guess, is, what's the status of Delphi? I mean, is it is Delphi it- or Delphi? Well, I noticed um, you guys uh, last week were talking about, or maybe it was the week before, Patents versus patents, and I think I think I think you're outnumbered, Jason, because um, it's Delphi. I, I'm a patent man. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, okay. All right. All right. So Delphi it is for this show. Yeah, I I was really interested. I mean, I, Delphi is something that I've seen on the job boards, and you know, people who do Delphi earn a great deal of money, like per hour. You know, it's fantastic uh, contract rates. And I always wondered, what the hell is this Delphi? You know, what is it? Well, Okay, well, basically, uh, Delphi is uh, obviously a, a language. You can basically think of it as object-oriented Pascal. Okay. Um, 
And it's very, it compiles to native code, so we don't have to worry about a runtime. Um, I'd say um, it's very attractive to people who want to reduce dependencies. I mean, it, it means you can create things quite quickly, um, quite, create uh, executables that are quite small, that run quite fast. Um, and there's no horrendously complicated class library or, or, or huge number of technology layers to worry about. Um, so, I mean, some people will cringe when I say this, but I think that one of the closest things would probably be Visual Basic 6. You basically get a graphical way to design forms, you get an event model, um, and that's pretty much it. And the rest of the time you can concentrate on the user interaction. Yeah, you know, I've, I've actually done a ton of VB6 work. I um, And the reason I, I, I kind of got into it, I was developing some Windows codes, Windows apps, and I had had a background in MFC and Visual C++ back in, you know, the 90s. And uh, I started doing consulting project for this uh, firm in Chicago. And they, it was a trading firm. and had a ton of traders and a lot of code and apps they needed. And here's like two or three guys were building everything. And they were doing it in VB6 and then uh, only dropping down to C++ for very specific tasks. And I asked him, I was like, why are you guys using VB6? I mean, they're like a, a hacky toy. I mean, you know, that's a joke, right? And they're like, no, listen, you can write about 10 times faster. You're about 10 times more productive in VB6 than you're on C++ if you're writing applications. And I kind of was like, whatever, you know, this is this is a joke. <laughs> and so I said, but then I said, all right, I'm going to play around with this. And sure enough, I was like, wow. I mean, compared to writing a, a Windows app using MFC, it was just, I was like, so I'm the idiot if I'm using MFC to do this stuff. And so I started just doing it and I was so much more productive. And one thing I want to say about that too is that, you know, VB6, right? If you, a lot of people come into VB6 are coming from VB Script or Excel and so they're not developers and they write crappy code and they write a form with like 10,000 lines of code. And it's a and but if you pick people who are who are experienced developers and know how to write code and maybe have come from C plus plus or some other structured you know language, you can write VB six code you know with all objects and 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 separate out into DLLs your business logic and do all these kinds of things and you can and it compiles down to C to machine code so it's super fast and if and I, I think that's the same thing with with Delphi I mean you just you can very quickly write high-quality Windows applications. In, uh, what's, the, what's the footprint of the engine part of Delphi? Because I know that um, other, other, I guess it's a, so it's a 4GL, right? I mean, typically speaking, 4GLs leave a big footprint of their, their basic operating code, which is like, I don't know, 10 megs. And then your code uh, is like maybe a couple of hundred K on top. Well, um, I, I'm not sure that I'd call Delphi a 4GL. I mean, would you call uh, Visual Basic a 4GL? I mean, I'm not sure that I would. Okay. But, uh, the smallest um, executable uh, I've created would be a couple of meg, but you can certainly create executables that are a lot less than a megabyte because it really com compiles down to an executable program. So I think the footprint would be a lot smaller than would be required for, for most everything else. I mean, it's probably pretty close to equivalent to compiling uh, in Visual Studio a C++ program to an executable. There really isn't much of a, um, of a footprint of the, uh, the Delphi-type stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you're uh, if you have like an MFC app, you still got those MFC DLLs back in the '90s. And so every time you install an, a Windows app, there's like MFC three five or four O DLLs. You know, you had to install. And VB six is kind of the same way. And Delphi, you have this DLL, but nowadays, it's actually pretty small. I mean, it's you know, a couple megs or something. Right? Okay, so um, when I'm slightly worried that we're getting too tech <laughs> for everyone. I mean, I, well, it's really nice to talk to talk tech stuff, but I don't want to take up too much time getting deep into it. Well, then, well, I, uh, I guess, okay, go on. 
Sorry, I was just going to say, well, uh, shall I tell you guys um, the worst database joke in the world? Would you like to hear the worst sure. database yeah. joke in the world? So, uh, okay, uh, a SQL statement walks into a bar, goes up to a couple of tables and says, do you mind if I join you? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> nice. Yeah, that's right. That I, is bad. <laughs> that's good. Um, uh, so okay, so how did you uh, how did you get into coding in the first place? Let's hear a little bit of your background. I'm always it's always interesting to hear kind of how people got into software development. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I had a computer from a very early age, and uh, my dad was um, fiddling around with Apple IIe's and uh, PC Juniors and PC XT's, and it always just seemed interesting. I guess um, I guess a lot of us and and um, maybe males more than females, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't go there, but we have this desire to create things, to construct things, or it seems that way to me anyway. And right. I think that computers are the new way to do that. So whereas in the past people uh, would be in the garage fixing their car or doing something with their car, I think these days it's the computer. So it was just a, a creative outlet for constructing things from an early age, I think. Yeah, and, and, and so you, so did you, um, did you take classes in school or did you just, in, when you were in high school, and, or just build stuff on your own or did you, do, did you go and study in, in, in college or... What was your short uh, yep. I did. Uh, I did a degree based around computer science um, at university, um, and I've been working as a professional ever since then. But I think uh, uh, graphics are what interested me early on. I mean, just the, the idea of your little rotating cube on the screen of, of programming that yourself was very exciting for me. Hmm. Um, so that pulled me in. I'm interested. You... I'm interested to know. Um, just going going back to your the startup and where you're at. What your you know how you're going to fund yourself to because obviously you're working at the moment right so you're about you're about to go then full-time into the venture how are you going to fund yourself are you going to be working for clients or have you like saved up a stash what's your thoughts uh, i've saved up a stash um that should <laughs> should support me for um a, probably four months maybe six months may, maybe more maybe less depending on um, so you've got a six-month runway yeah basically yeah okay so and do you, do you have a do you have a wife or any or any dependents or anything you have to worry about or is it just you? Uh, I've got a uh, a partner who I live with, uh, Rachel, um, okay. and it's just the pair of us and our two dependent little dogs. Okay, oh. so so she so she's 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 down with this, right? She's not freaking out about it or anything. She thinks it's you know you got a shot and she's kind of behind it. She's very supportive, incredibly incredibly supportive, um, which is great. But she'd be incredibly supportive even if I was. Uh, uh, had no chance in hell. So her support is very helpful, but um, that's more than I can say yeah. for my wife, who rolls her eyes every time I mention a project. <laughs> <laughs> they roll their eyes, but at the end of the day, they're behind you, right? Yeah, I mean, that's they, what I hope. They, that's the same with my wife. You know, they just and that's for guys. I know for guys like us who are doing the startup thing, you need to, you, you know, you can't be in a situation where whoever you're with is just sort of not believing in it or not willing to, you know take the path with you it's you know it's a lot of sort of uncertainty and they have to be kind of like this is an exciting thing let's you know let's do it if they're just like you know you really should be taking a job this is risky you know you don't know and then it's just it's just works so against you that you must another thing i want to ask sam was that he has okay query cell which is a very techie product but then he's got quiz night chief quiznightchief.com which is just a totally untechie product a real warm and friendly bubbly product how did that how did those two come together and then like how did you <laughs> go down that path of doing those two, two different routes yeah um 
it's a good question. They're both they're both itches that I needed to scratch. I mean, one was uh, a frustration I had personally, but the, uh, that was Query Cell, where I thought I, I would love access to SQL here. Uh, yeah. For Quiz Night Chief, basically, I, I go out to, to quiz and trivia nights, fundraising uh, it, trivia nights. In um, pubs, right? Uh, in pubs and other places. Uh, it's uh, reasonably popular in Australia to have a quiz or a trivia night. Uh, for example, Amnesty International has a huge uh, fundraising trivia night uh, in the, the city I live in. And I'd go to these places and you'd see the organisers who are doing a fantastic job and working incredibly hard to sort of herd all the cats that you've got to deal with at, at a quiz <laughs> night. So, um, there's always someone who cl is claiming that the, the answer's wrong or claiming they've been misscored. And the, the, the organisers are doing all this hard work as, at the same time as they're um, dealing with this ad hoc system that they've created themselves, which is using uh, text files or, or, or Microsoft Excel or... Basically, they've got a system for running the quiz night that they put together themselves, and I, right. I just look at this and think, surely, surely we can build something to help them. Why? Why did you choose? Um, maybe this is a dumb question, but why did you choose desktop software versus online? I mean, because I, presumably they wouldn't have necessarily needed an online component, or, or do you need that on the quiz night? The actual active component. Uh, that's a good question. Well, uh, so so quiz night chief is a desktop application, and the main um, the main reason for that was that. We're not quite at the point, I, I, I think, where people are guaranteed to have Wi-Fi access. Yeah. I mean, if I thought people in these halls and in these pubs would definitely have a laptop with, with internet access, then online would have been much easier for me in many ways. But I thought it just cuts out too much of the market. Uh, too, too many people wouldn't be able to use it because um, they might not have access uh, to the internet. Any sales of that one? Uh, no. Ah. Well. And how, long have, how, long is, how long has it been for sale? Uh, Quiz Night Chief's been on sale only for a couple of weeks, I believe, less, uh, not as long as Query Cell. Okay. I'm, I'm, are you worried that it's going to split up your focal time to be able to release both of these things at the same time and go in two different marketing directions? Well, uh, you know what, uh, developers, you might, uh, you might identify with this, but I've actually got product number three and four are banging <laughs> on my mind. Oh, my God. Oh, so, uh-oh, so, <laughs> uh-oh, you sound like that. I've got this, I've got this, the exact same problem, and it's, it's basically because the love of creating is so strong, basically. You, you just want to program stuff and make stuff. That, well, that's yeah. more alluring than the marketing. Absolutely. What we need to do, and you guys can help me out here, we need to create a box which will take an idea in, in our minds and turn it into a physical reality. So we can, like, these ideas come so quickly and it takes so long to actually build them. We need this magic box, that idea to software, and we'd be rocking. Isn't that just called a programmer? <laughs> I mean, this, this is why I, I started the Startup Idea website, because basically I'm, I, I want to focus on the, on the startup idea I'm working on now, and I've been working on it for the last six months. The problem is I keep on thinking of all these new ideas, and they're so distracting that I'm exercising them via this website, and I'm just posting up any new thing I think of, just sending it out to the world. Anyone can use it, do whatever they want. And then once I've given it away, I don't need to, you know, it doesn't bug me. Hey, hey, Justin, yeah? I was definitely going to ask you about that because I noticed on the Business of Software forum you're posting your uh, software ideas, yeah. and a lot, a, lot of people are so, um, a lot of people are so protective over their ideas. So um, what's, what's made you say, hey, I'm just going to give these away, I'm going to tell the world? Well, these ideas it, are. It's, it's just what I just said, which is um, just basically I don't want those ideas to, to sort of take up my thinking time because I've got a, a really good idea, which I'm really focused on now, and I just don't want to, don't want to get distracted from that. 
Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I, I I would essentially just write them down in a text file. I have like you know my ten or fifteen ideas and whatever they are, and uh, you know I, it's probably a better idea because they just sit on the file and they kind of rot. It's not like you're going to be able to pursue them all anyway. So, or or as or maybe you can. I mean, look at uh, Sam. I mean, he's got four. He's going to release four separate products. So either either you 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 do a couple things. You don't do anything. You know, like yeah. me, you, you you follow one or two, and then you put the rest in a file. To think maybe one day I'll do that. You do what you you're suggesting, Justin, which is or what you are doing, which is put them out on the web, or you do what Sam is, is just release them really quickly. Well, Sam seems like he's hedging. He's 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 playing yep. the hedge fund. I think it's a smart. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, if you if you can get three or four products out there at the same time, you can actually do it. Then you know why not? But because, then that's worrying about how easy it is to create those products. I mean, if if you can create four products then there's not very much barrier to entry to be copied. I mean, a, p a perfect example is um, is Balsamic, right? Balsamic mockups. Um, mm -hmm. Peldy's created this product, which isn't that difficult to create, but he spent huge amounts of time uh, dedicated to marketing, to PR, to getting it out there, to working with existing customers. And he's just focused, it up, focused on one simple product, which is just a wireframe tool. And that's, that's he just spends all his time uh, basically marketing it. And that's why he's earned over 200,000 in a year. You know, just from one tiny little product. So he's uh, he's kind of an argument against um, the worrying about the barrier to entry. I mean, he's kind of saying, yes, you can you can build a wireframe uh, mock-up tool, but uh, everyone's talking about my wireframe mock-up tool. Basically, um, it's it's execution versus idea is what is what uh, people talk about and what people say. You know, that this is where it's really at as far as being an entrepreneur. It's about execution. It's not about idea. And well, what you're saying is not about execution of the product. It's about execution of the business side. Yeah, right? ex execution of the business side. So I'm saying that Sam is portraying the tendencies that I think we all do, which is to, to come up with four products rather than maybe just focusing on one and executing on that as a business. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, look, okay, a couple things. You know, sometimes you can throw a few up there and you just kind of see which ones start to take off. I mean, maybe one starts to really take off and the other two flounder or, one, or a couple, and you can kind of, you know – Put them out there as hypotheses, and then rather and rather rather than running them sequentially, like something's not working, you can yeah. just kind of throw them out there, see what happens. I mean, so it may turn in out, on the one that works. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's kind of exercising his demons. He gets them out there, and then whichever one uh, works, great. Because here, here, here's my argument for doing that: is what happens, you know, is that with me anyway, is that I'll as I'll release an idea, and if it doesn't start taking off, I start thinking, oh, I knew I should have done that other idea, you know. Why am I doing this? This is a waste of time. But with Sam's model, he doesn't have that. He's got them all out but there. But what idea does take off straight away? I mean, no idea takes off. Every idea takes work. I mean, like if you, if you do something new that people haven't heard about before, you know, 90% of the time they don't even understand what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I've got to say, I think I, I agree with Justin. I mean, I said there was a couple of other product ideas that were, were jumping in my mind, but I don't think I'm going to develop and release those. I think I'm going to concentrate on these two. And I think the, the issue is with developers is we like developing and we know developing. The marketing, the dealing with people, um, the going on podcasts, the, the getting your name out there, whatever, whatever your marketing approach is, that's not uh, something we know about as developers and not something we're comfortable with. So there's this real danger of doing lots and lots of products and just doing the bit you like doing. And then when yeah. you get to the end of the development phase, you say, well, rather than doing the new bit, I'll go and start the, the bit I'm comfortable with for product number two. So I think that's definitely a danger that, that has to be pushed past um, and that I'm trying to push past right now. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see the different sides there. With Balsamic, I think it's interesting. I don't know if anyone's mentioned this explicitly, but I think one of the key things that did ex extremely well for Balsamic was 
on the demonstration video for Balsamic, uh, when Peldy was typing in, the characters were appearing uh, in very large font on the screen and sliding across the screen. Now, I think that was the key thing in the demo that people noticed. I mean, he'd start typing and suddenly these letters would start whooshing across the screen. So it was, it was almost like a little gimmick. It was a little nice, elegant bit of user interface that people, made people go, wow. Right. So it's 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 kind of it's, it's he spent time honing in on the sort of the the flash of it, not just the substance, but just you know. I didn't what see it, that when I, I saw the demo. I mean, I I just saw what I thought was good was that he mocked up iTunes in his in his product, um, and he mocked it up, uh, you know, in in a couple of minutes. But then again, it was sort of time frame so that you know it was speeded up. But I just thought it was yep. kind of cool that way. But actually, when I had a go of it, what was amazing to me was. I've always been looking for a tool like this. I want a tool that takes over from the pen, you know, from the paper and the pencil, because it's a pain in the ass to to draw, <laughs> to actually draw. And I've always yep. thought, wouldn't it be great if you had a piece of software that could do this? And that's what he did, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a you good know, example. Uh, I'm sorry. Go on. Go on, Sam. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's a good example of how uh, taking stuff away has a good benefit. That um, you know, the the diagrams you create or the, the mockups you look great are less. Um, real looking than you could get, you know, doing it in an IDE, but that actually adds something. Take, taking away that stuff actually adds something. Well, clients certainly love it. I can tell you that. Like when you when you take a mock-up of a website to a client in that format, they love it because it's it it doesn't feel constrained to them. It's not locking them down to a design, but it's really making the product palpable and it's bringing bringing it to life for them. And in fact, this answers that question that you were talking about, which is, um, you know, how do I create a product in ten minutes? Well, use balsamic. <laughs> That's how you do it. <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, another uh, one thing I, we kind of skipped over, but I think it'd be worth mentioning is you're talking about how do we how do we get ourselves as as sort of developers from just writing code and actually executing on the business stuff? Yeah. Because it's outside of our comfort zone or it's not really what we want to do or you know, we can always find an excuse to to write more code. And, uh, you know, I, you know, cause that's the, I, I fell into that trap, I think with a couple of my previous startups, you know, I, I, you know, I could do the business stuff, I could do the sales, but I just didn't want to do it nearly as much as I wanted to write code. And I, I um, a friend of mine who uh, is the CEO of Central Desktop, um, Isaac, he, he, you know, we would grab lunch once a week or so. He, he lives right here in Pasadena, and he kept saying, you know, Jason, you know, I really think you need like a, a, a business partner. You need someone to just do the business stuff while you're doing the technology. And I was like saying, well, I don't know. It's such a big deal. There's not much to do right now. But the, the fact was he had a business partner, um, Arnulf, who wrote all of the code, who was a CTO, and it was just the two of them for our first couple of years, and it allowed – Arnoff to really just focus on the technology, and um, it allowed Isaac to spend all his time just shaking the trees, you know, talking to customers, getting the word out, doing the PR, and it forced Arnoff to get something real and get something live because otherwise Isaac didn't have anything to do. But how do you find that partner? That's what I, that's what I've been finding so difficult, and that's that's what I'm struggling with with my startup is how do you find someone to compliment you? For example. Um, you know, I, I couldn't work with Jason as my business partner <clears throat> because we're too similar. We both love to create software, and it, it sounds like Sam would also make a bad business partner for me. Whereas, you know, all three of us need someone who is a CFO kind of person. How do how do you find them? Where do you find them? What do you, oh, you know, what do you incentivize when, when, them with? <laughs> I have a couple ideas. One one thing I'll tell you. You know, my my first startup, I had a, my partner was another developer, and we had the problem until we brought on uh, my wife. My wife w wasn't my wife at the time; she was just my girlfriend. And maybe that's not the best thing to do is bring your girlfriend on, but. <laughs> 
she, it turned out to be an okay decision because what she did is she was like operations. She did everything except for sales and uh, writing code, customer support, PR, marketing, uh, you know, whatever. And she would set up appointments for us. So it was like we had no choice but to go out and give demos. And, and we were selling our stuff to banks and, and you know, these, these big trading firms. So it wasn't a matter of just putting it on the web. And that's, it would force us to do stuff. You know, that she sounds – go on, spit it out. Yeah, well, Sorry. She, she she forced us to uh, you know to 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 do the business side. I mean, she did what she could do in terms of the marketing and PR and all that stuff. But in terms of doing what we had to do in terms of sales, I mean, she's like, okay, you guys got four appointments tomorrow. Or Jason, you're flying to San Francisco. Yeah, but Jason, you're- what happens if you don't have a, a girlfriend or wife who wants to come into the business with you? Well, I don't, I don't mean to have your girlfriend one. or wife, but if you find somebody who can sometimes take an operational role, sometimes that can where do you help. find them? You got to talk to people, I guess. Like find anybody. I, I don't know. You just got to talk to people, and and you can't. As us developers, you know, we have a tendency just to want to sit in our office and just write code all well, day. I will. You- I will. The reason why I'm I'm sort of badgering you about it is because I did find one website, startuply.com, mm-hmm. and um, I found it to be tremendously helpful. And I post I posted because uh, I'm I'm looking for a, com- a commercial guy or gal to help me with my startup. So I just posted the job description on on startuply.com. And I got, you know, so many CVs and I made it very clear that it was um, it was a business that was just totally sort of seed stage. And I still got lots of CVs. And then from those CVs, I was able to, um, you know, strike up some conversations. So some interesting stuff's happening from that. Yeah, I think, I I think it really helps. I think it really helps to have a partner for a lot of reasons. But go yeah. on, Sam. Uh, yeah, I definitely think, uh, and from what I've read, everyone says, you know, partner adds a lot. And, I, and someone who doesn't have a, a partner in my business, I can see how a partner would be would be huge. I think is there's a possibility that maybe uh, this kind of thing, we're looking at it slightly uh, wrongly, um, in that you'd say, well, we're the techies, we need a business person. But I think that it's it's uh, there's a myth out there that uh, technical people can't do the business side of things, can't do the management side of things. I find it very common in organizations to have non-technical people make uh, slightly derisive comments about technical people, say, oh, he's, he's just a propeller head or, you know, um, we'll leave the, the, these techies to have their discussion or we'll leave these nerds to have their discussion, like as if there's something a bit distasteful about the technical details. And I don't know that that's true. And I think a lot of technical people uh, can have fantastic communication skills and maybe even fantastic sales skills. It's just that they've kind of been told repeatedly that, that they can't get into that area. And it would seem as though a lot of successful technology companies are run by, by technical people. But, but I don't know if the issue is whether, the, whether techies can do it or not. The issue is time. The issue is what we were talking – Was it what was the term you used? Was it task switching, uh, Jason? What context, was context switching. Yeah, context switching. I mean the issue is just you know, what is it you want to do with your life? What is it you want to do with your time? Well, no, it's, it's not so much what you want to do with your time. It's like it's just I think it's very hard to spend four hours writing code and then go off immediately jumping into like making phone calls and, and going to events and talking to customers. It's just yeah. hard to, f- to flip back and forth in it. And I think that the people who start startups tend to be the technical people who, who have these other traits more likely. If they didn't have these other traits or the ability to talk to people and the ability to sell and the ability to communicate, they probably would just stay within a bigger company or, or, or at least hook onto a startup where they don't have to worry about it. I mean, there is a way. There is a way. If, if you create software, digital software, and then you get hooked into something like clickbank.com, you know, where you work with affiliate marketers, there's plenty of techies who don't know anything about marketing who just get involved in a site like ClickBank and they get, you know, affiliates to do the marketing for them. 
Well, what do you think about that, Sam? I mean, what's your, I mean, what's your perspective on, 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 the, on using um, something like ClickBank? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I don't know the details of ClickBank, so I'm not sure that I could comment on that. I think that possibly there's a model where you have a couple of technical people and you say, okay, for the next three months or the next month or the next whatever, um, you know, person A will be doing the more marketing, the more communication side of things. And you could either say to this person, look, why don't you take, you know, a year and just do marketing, even though you're a technical person in your, in your soul, or you could alternate like three months or six months. And then I think everyone gets, gets a rounded experience and a round shot at all parts of, the, of creating the software and getting the software out there. That, that could work. Um, in, I don't know that it's ever going to work in terms of just doing it on the internet, just using like websites and emails and basically the developer being comfortable in front of their screen and never having to actually get out there, do meetings and talk to people. I think that that's a kind of bridge that, that people are going to have to cross. Like th this is coming from my sort of very limited experience. Well, actually just... Now that you say that, that, um, that brings me back to something I wanted to say, which is query cell to me seems like something that, that governments need. Like I've, you always hear about uh, governments and the Treasury Department working with Excel. And, you know, what could be better than something like query cell? So I, I would imagine it would be like a great opportunity for you to go out and speak to, to, to Treasury Departments and try and sell, you know, like thousand placement licenses to them. And that's Especially certainly not something you're going to do online. <laughs> Definitely, and especially at the moment where they're just handing over billions of, of dollars to whoever's asking. So I might be able to get some sort of stimulus money. It could be unreal. Oh, totally. Right. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think QuerySell is definitely something that's going to be sold to businesses and a lot of enterprise businesses. Yeah. And it's definitely going to benefit from someone coming out there and making phone calls and shaking the trees. And I remember exactly. when I, my, with my first startup, and we were selling to these, in, like I said, in this finance industry. And I, we were at some... Um, like a trade show and we were, t I was talking to uh, another company that was in the industry and I was talking to their, he was like a head of sales and marketing. And he said, yeah, every morning I make about 60 phone calls before I do anything, just one after the other. And I'm like 60 phone calls. I mean, I'm thinking I make like three a day if I'm lucky. <laughs> You know, he would get up and he would just like war dial, you know, all these potential customers. But they were very, very successful. I mean, their product became like the Microsoft Word of uh, this derivatives trading. Uh, it's software. completely a numbers game, and it's the same thing with um, with getting funding, uh, going to angels and VCs. Did you see on um, this week in startups, Jason Calacanis has asked every member so far, you know, how every uh, guest, how many how many VCs did you go and see? And and they've all said, oh, about thirty five or forty VCs. Yeah, that is a, gotta, that's a lot of people to pitch to to get the funding. You know, it's like whoa. I think mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, whether it's customers or whether it's uh, you know investors, you just got to talk to a lot of people and, and expect to talk to a lot of people. And um, but if you could find, I think if you're really committed to what you're doing, and if Sam's you know for instance, I mean, he can probably he's already got a product that's out there. So maybe now he can focus on doing some of the, the, you know, the sales and the marketing and PR and whatever, and then putting a little bit of time into improving the product. And then, and then maybe once he starts to get a little momentum going, he, it'll be very easy for him to entice or hire somebody else to come on who can then pick up some of the slack on whichever side he wants to not focus on as much time on. Yeah, I think that's that's very much the plan. I we'll have to have a, I have to see how that goes, but that, that's very much the plan. And I think the discussions we're having about uh, sales and marketing and uh, those sort of things raise the issue of um, basically, do we want? Is the motivation to create products or, or to create something that's going to be successful, or is the motivation to create something that's going to be useful? I mean, 
I mean, if someone said to me, okay, there's there's a little tool, a little silly little um, pop-up, little koala bear, little application you could write for, for Facebook or for the iPhone or whatever, that, is, that would be hugely successful. That would be attractive because it would be successful, but I would kind of feel a little bit of, well, it's not actually adding to the, 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 the net happiness of the world. It's not actually a, a step forward. Whereas I think a lot of other ideas that, that come to mind, you think, wow, the world would really benefit from this. But if I was to build it, no one would say, oh, I need it. I'd have to go out there and, and, and explain to people how this is a great idea. So you want to do – are you saying you want to do ideas <clears throat> not specifically for the money? You need to feel you need to feel motivated and good about doing the idea. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. But I think sometimes if, 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 uh, if I just sit down and brainstorm what would be ideas that people would want, I can probably come up with a list of ideas that people may want, but they're not particularly useful ideas. They're not u- ideas that are really going to make the world a better place. And, and uh, other times I can think of ideas that I think would, would really make the world a better place, but they'd be incredibly difficult to implement and to get people to use. Um, so, yeah, so I just see a conflict there. But, I mean, if, if, uh, if other people don't see that, uh, that dichotomy, maybe, maybe it's just me. I think that's the. I think that's sort of you know if you can get all those things to fall in line, like it actually makes money. It's you know people makes the world a better place. You know then that's great. I mean usually I would think that people. I mean right there are certain things that people pay money for that doesn't make the world a better place. But when it comes to software, um, unless unless it's some kind of entertainment, uh, something for entertainment. If you're talking about like a a productivity application or something, then in some case it has to provide some kind of value for them. And so in a sense. If you're making your life easier, if you're reducing pain or making them more efficient or whatever, then they'll pay for it, and then it will be a financial success. I would think that there's pretty high, there's a pretty decent correlation between the two. Well, here's something I was thinking about: the, the morals of business. I mean, like it's it's a it's a, a tricky issue. I was thinking about, for example, okay, Stack Overflow, right, or Google. Like both of those both both of those companies could only exist really because they're drinking someone else's milkshake. Um, I mean, Google, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't really invent that, that concept. So morally speaking, are they, you know, <clears throat> involved in skullduggery? <laughs> and is Stack Overflow, because Stack Overflow is obviously taking a big chunk out of um, expert exchange, is it? Yes. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think about that? Is it just competition or is it, is there any moral implications there? Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't really see the moral implications. I mean, they're competing with experts exchange and that's fine. I mean, you don't, that's what it's all about. I mean, they're offering a better product than experts exchange, you know, too bad for experts exchange unless they want to step up and do a better job. And the only way we're going to have better and better services and products is if we have more and more competitors in each category, forcing one another to, to, to push the ball down the field. I mean, you know, if IE just sat there not proving for six years until Firefox came in. And now Chrome and all this stuff, you know, all these new browsers are so inherently business is mean because you're always going to be drinking someone else's milkshake, and whatever you do, you're always going to be a meanie. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do business anymore. I want to be a nice person. Well, it's like it's like playing a sport or something, right? I mean, you mean because you win. Look, you got to play. You got to play the game, and and in the end, the person who benefits or the people who benefit are the people, you know, um, the 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 customers or the 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 users. Because if all you're worried about is hurting the feelings of or, or it's taking not just away the feelings it's, it's the it's the families of the employees who are earning money so if i if i create a successful company and that then you know brings another company down that company goes bankrupt and all those people don't have any money 
Well, first well, of all, I'm, you're probably not going to take them down completely, and second of all, you're making other users happier, and you might be creating more value outside of it. Net, net, you create more value, but what you're probably doing is you're going to force them to do a better job, and they probably won't completely, you know, you're not going to obliterate your competitors because you've come into a space usually, and you're just making all the customers and users happier. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't see how that's such a problem. Yeah, I think normal sort of capitalist theory would say that um, a competitor coming in and out. Uh, out providing or, out or doing a better job than another company or another organization driving them out of business is actually a win for society that ultimately we end up with more wealth and higher living standards i mean that's that's traditional capitalism and you might say that, that that's been shown not to be the case but yeah because of the current financial climate and the whole the whole shit that we're all going through that, well, how does that have to do with competition that doesn't have anything to do with competition i mean well, it does it, do with... it has to do it basically has to do with um i guess the the Okay, now I, I don't want to get to get done for talking crap. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah, say anything I mean, more on this. You can get out of it, but it has a lot to do with lack of regulation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huge, lack of regulation. There lack you. of regulation, incredible amounts of forty to one leverage, and all kinds of things. That doesn't have to do with like people out competing one, our companies out competing one another. I mean, if if well, uh, well it does if, have if, to do with loan like uh, loan sellers out competing each other, doesn't it? And their companies, and they're the people who are calling up the customers and making you know ridiculous offers and. Then those customers are taking the loans, and then they're losing that's, their house. That's just because there was the referees were removed from the field. The refs were removed, and then everyone starts cheating. You know, it's like you keep the refs on the field so that people aren't allowed to cheat, and you have. Well, who's, um, who's the referee between Stack Overflow and Experts Exchange? There is no. I mean, the referee. I mean, the referee is just you know what's legal and what's supposed to happen. I mean, you know, if if Experts Exchange refuses to make a better product and they go out of business or they lose revenue, fine. That's fine. But they need to step up. They can't just sit there and collect a toll that everyone has to pay because, uh, you know, and then not do any work. You've got to step up and make your product better. And as far as I can tell, the product hasn't improved much in the last I, I will confess years. I am slightly being devil's advocate here. No, I understand. I, I understand. But I, <laughs> I mean, I'm all for competition. And, and you're right. People get the world in anybody. I mean, think about it this way. It's like, you know, people will do the least amount of work they have to to make something happen, and they could focus their resources somewhere else, right? I mean, um, and if if they can make the same amount of money by doing nothing, then why would they do something? They would just do something else with those resources, that time and that money. And so now Stack Overflow is coming in and, and, and is going to start eating their lunch. They're like, oh, okay, we better step up, hire some developers, have some UI people, just create and improve our product. Otherwise, we're going to lose everything. It amazes me how some, how how this situation can happen. They can just sort of sit there and watch it happen and watch someone build that lead under you know underneath them like how is it that they can't be watching it and 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 on well, top of the situation it's weird well uh, justin i mean it's amazing how um how a bunch of smart people together can end up making really dumb decisions i mean one person running a particular site it's hard to imagine them not noticing a com competitor running past them but uh, enough smart people together and they'd be far too busy having meetings and uh, worrying about internal stuff to, to even notice that uh, the competitors are uh, running is, past. Is that what's happening or is it – I mean I don't know the company structure of, of Experts Exchange. Are we allowed to – I mean I noticed that Stack Overflow, whenever they talk about it, they call them that site with the hyphen. No, it's just because it's their competitor and they want to bring more but attention it's fine, to it. But it's fine for us to talk about it, right? Yeah, we can talk about anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yes, excellent. We can really stir the shit. If I'm going to talk about anybody. I don't care. You don't. You could censor yourself, but I'm going to, you know, talk because about whoever. I, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've worked in big companies like that, and what it is, it, uh, well, once again, I don't know the company structure of Experts Exchange, but I'm imagining, let's say it's owned by some big 
big company that has thousands of employees, man, it's difficult to do anything in a company like that. It's like wading through sludge. You know, you just can't get consensus. You can't get good good decisions. You just can't bloody move forward. So that could be the kind of thing that could kill him. Well, did you have you guys? Did yep. you guys see that catch that thing uh, uh, about that guy? I think his name's Dustin. He was a designer, and he redesigned. I think it was the American Airlines site on his own. Yeah. And oh yeah. That whole thing, and then and then and then and then he got a a long sort of thoughtful email um, from I guess I guess one of the uh, the user experience architects, and he's just like, yeah, basically, you know, we have like you know a hundred different people touch this site and all these different groups, and there's no consensus, and everybody, and so it just becomes just a mess. And that's exactly what you're saying. The American yeah. Airlines user experience on their website is a disaster because you have way too many people in there all sort of protecting their little fiefdom and no one's looking at the overall experience. Well, because they've got to justify their job. This is what I we guess. talk about in England about council jobs. You know, people justify their jobs. So if they don't spend, you know, if, our, if, if my department doesn't spend five million this year, well, then we don't get appropriated five million next year. So we just spend it on crap. Yeah, well, that's the budget. Yeah, that's it's a budgeting process, I guess. Is that you know, if you don't spend it, it gets taken away. But so that's a perfect example. If 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 American Airlines does not improve their their user experience, they will probably lose more and more business to other airlines. To a point, I mean, the obviously web their website isn't the biggest part of their their business is offering, but you know, it'll force it to get better because other you know Southwest or JetBlue or United or whoever will start taking business away from them. It works to solve that problem. They'll have to become more efficient, or they will lose money. Okay, let's move on. Um, Sam, you had some you had some other topics you wanted yep. to bring up. Sure. Um, Give us have one. you guys have you guys um, uh, had a chance to check out, or have you ever checked out the uh, John Carmack keynote speeches at QuakeCon? Do you no. know about these? I haven't. I mean, oh. John Carmack's an interesting guy. I mean, obviously he's a he's a coding genius, but I haven't I haven't heard of the uh, heard of that. Oh, I would, I would totally recommend going to YouTube or Google Video and looking for the QuakeCon keynote speeches by John Carmack. It really is a, a tour de force. Basically, it's just John Carmack standing on stage for literally a couple of hours just riffing off the top of his head about what's gone on in the past year. So, you know, at times he'll be talking about how sparse voxel trees should be supported on graphics hardware and things like that that don't mean much to, to non-graphics programmers. But he also talks about what it's like uh, from a business perspective to deal with Sony versus Microsoft versus Nintendo, um, you know, how strong are the different APIs from the different mobile phones. Um, it really is just inspirational stuff uh, in terms of a technical person who's passionate about technology and also cares about the business side of things. So the QuakeCon keynote uh, speeches by John Carmack, definitely worth checking out. Okay, that, that reminds me, um, I, I watched a video uh, recently, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, um, uh, on the next web, talk, talking on TED.com um, about linked data. And I thought that was just really interesting, he, talking about how linked data is essentially the new frontier. And it's how, you know, it's, it's the next evolution of the web, essentially. In the semantic web, essentially, is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah, just just almost like, uh, in a sense, the way that Wolfram Wolf Alpha is, is bringing stuff together and it's like working with different data sets and giving you new insights. Um, it's it, he was. I think the example he was giving was, you know, if everyone researching a certain disease put that data and made it freely available on the web, and then all those data sets were connected together, then they could start to see patterns that may help them have, you know, breakthroughs regarding that disease. Right. Well, I mean, that's sort of happening, isn't it, with you know all these companies providing REST APIs. 
yeah. and things of that nature. I mean, it, it seems like it's that's going to be just a slow process for that to happen because. <laughs> Well, it's definitely, I'm just saying it's a, I mean, I'm not very good at paraphrasing what he said, but I would definitely recommend having a look at that Tim Berners-Lee uh, linked data video on TED. I would say, Jason, it's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned REST APIs, because to my mind, REST APIs are the opposite of the semantic web or RDF. I mean, REST APIs are, um, are simple and uh, just all about freedom and, and, you know, here's a simple protocol, return what you want to return. Whereas right. it seems like uh, Tim Berners-Lee and RDF and the semantic web is all about, hey, uh, it's kind of a, a, like a, a boil the ocean solution, um, to use a phrase, in that, yeah, if everyone puts all this amazing metadata, if everyone puts a lot of effort converting all their data into this particular complicated structure which provides a lot of metadata, then we can do cool stuff. But I really doubt that we're ever going to convince everyone to, to do it. I mean, people just aren't willing to put that work in up front to add in all this metadata. It seems like the Google approach, which is, you know, do what you want with the data and we'll use smart algorithms to, to get meaning out of it is going to win. And the idea of everyone has to pump a lot of metadata in at the beginning is, is not going not gonna to fly. I think you're right. I think it's, it ultimately comes down to the self-interest of the, of the parties involved. And if it's not in the interest of parties involved to put all this work into making their data available and self-describing and all this stuff, they're just not going to do it. And that's probably the case for most you know, participants. And so you're right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fall on the shoulders of companies that want to access and utilize the data and companies like Google who can facilitate that and, or Wolfram Alpha, right? They're facilitating yep. that or they're curating their own data. I, I think you're right. I, I think this whole the semantic web is the future is going to remain the future for a long time, I think. Uh, there, there, was, uh, there was that great quote from uh, Peter Norvig of um, Google and AI fame where he said, uh, you know, the semantic uh, web is the future of uh, the internet and it always will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually, the, that's actually the quote I was trying to think of. I, I was like, I, I couldn't remember who said it or what. That's right. That's right. It always will be. That's a fantastic. So, so yeah, I just noticed on Reddit there was a bit of a stash going on with uh, Guido Van Rossum of um of Python. Um, basically, and, and I think th this um snowballed into something else. But it started off where people were discussing whether um Python supports um tail recursion elimination. Just um, which I which I, I know almost nothing about uh, Python or functional programming, but I believe. That's where if the last call of a function is a recursive call to that function itself, the compiler can turn it into just an iterative loop rather than a, a recursive call um, uh, using the stack. Um, and, and people were writing about how Python should support this, and uh, Guido wrote an article explaining why he didn't think Python should support it and explained why uh, you know, it wasn't really the bee's knees, wasn't really that good. And people started to question his understanding, and, and it got a bit personal to the extent where someone actually mailed Guido a copy of the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs book as a kind of slap in the face, you know, get yourself educated kind of thing. And right. when I saw this... I just thought that this has huge parallels. Like this is just like that uh, Susan Boyle from the Britain's Got Talent, where we've built someone up and we've given them a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of people said great things about them. And then when they're at a certain stage, a certain status, it then becomes fun to try and attack them and pull them down. And I think we see this a bit with PHP as well, in that for a long time PHP was the the underdog that everyone was supporting. You know, it was you know beating all the big companies, and it was this great technology. And then when it became a sort of de facto standard, it then became sort of cool to attack it. I, I think yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in tech that really is just fashion. Well, that's because that's because technical people are just bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you know, there's actually, it's funny they mentioned that there's an article, I, I did get a chance to read it, but it, it's, it's called, I'll, I'll put a show notes on it, but it's, 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 
based in the um, uh, phizorgs.com, and it's called phizorg.com. It's called Why Things Become Unpopular, like basically, a, I guess, a study of human behavior. And I think things become cool and trendy for a while, and then everybody rebels against it. And, you know, that's the same. And you're right. Your programming language is PHP. And then, uh, and, you know, Ruby is the thing. Like, if you're not cool unless you're doing Ruby and using Git and using Emacs and on a Mac, and pretty soon Hold that's going to be lame. You know, Hold Famili- on, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, Sam. Yeah, pretty much. Well, you know, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, Jason, you're not using Git. I mean, if you're not using Git, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, we well, you know what's funny is I don't use any source control. So, I, I mean, I, I don't really have. Any oh my that. god. I know. I don't. <laughs> oh, what a can of worms you've just opened. I know. Well, I yeah, cannot I... believe that you do not use source control. I can, you know what my source control is? You know what my you, source control is? I copy and paste a copy of the entire source directory into a backup directory <laughs> and give it a date. Oh, I've I just I don't even think I can do this podcast with you anymore. It's yep. it, hey, you know what? It's work. Uh, hard drive space is cheap. It takes me all of one second. I never think about it, and it's never been a problem. I, that it, is, ju- I'm just gobsmacked. Wow. <laughs> well, listen, I. Uh, Here's here's the thing. How right? can you so, how can you call yourself a prof- professional programmer? And I, I'm I'm not trying to insult you. I'm really not trying to be mean here. But I am just amazed. That is uh, I've never heard anything like I, it. I've been meaning to uh, every day for the past three years. I just never get around to it. <laughs> You know, wow. And I literally use, you know, you know, my editor that I use to write all this, you know, JavaScript and PHP and SQL, whatever. I use this thing as base. It's called HapEdit, right? It is like a a notepad with you know, call it with syntax highlighting. I mean, it is as l- simple as you could get, and it's in a little simple FTP program. That's all I use. But you, I don't. You're use- an amazing programmer. I mean, you made Prezo.com. You know, you beat Google to to turning PowerPoint into an online application. Well, I just think. Uh, yeah, How did you well, do that without source control? <laughs> what happens? Source- what happens when you go down? <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you go down a path and you had something that was okay? This this what happens to me with source control a lot. Like I'll I'll be facing a difficult problem, and I'll go I'll go down a path and I'll almost get there, and then I'll go no no you know what I'm gonna try something else, and then I'll go down this other path, and then I'll be like you know what that first path I went down was the right one, and I go back to that one by just reverting. Well, what I do is if I think I'm about to get, you know, if, I, if I'm about to get nasty, right, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm really going to do some damage to this code. I'll say, you know, I'm just, you know, make another copy of this directory. Or sometimes I'll copy a couple of files. I'll just say, copy them and paste them onto my desktop or something. <laughs> and I'll say, just in case, I'm, I'm going to try something. Or sometimes I'll just copy and paste a, a, you know, a selection out of the file into a notepad. I mean, it's, it's, Jason, like I said, listen, let, let, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce a revelation to you. You're going to, you, it, it's going to change your life. It's going to be amazing. It's this okay. amazing thing called source control. I, Subversion I, I, is a fantastic ver- source control system. You use Tortoise SVN client. You plug it into your system, and it's just like nothing else. It's just really, well, I don't really have good. A system. I have HAP edit. You can, you can <laughs> use my – you don't need – it doesn't matter about the editor. Basically, so, uh, Tortoise SVN uh, binds at, at the file explorer level, right? So, mm-hmm. so what happens is every time you make a change to a file, it doesn't matter how you make that change. You can make it in a text editor or any kind of editor. And it basically flags it within the system itself. So you get like a little red dot on the file to say that it's been changed. And mm-hmm. then you just right-hand click and you do check in. And then that puts it into the source control. You can right-hand click on the file and just show me any revisions. 
you you can look at the differences between all the revisions. Great. Like it's incredibly useful. Well, it sounds useful, but I mean, like I said, I, I mean, I you don't need it. I, at least I don't need it. I mean, I can. I, I don't. I, I used to think that, but since I've been using it, I just I couldn't live without it. Like it's one of those one of those pivotal pivotal points in programming. Sorry, look, um, Sam, look, what do you let, think? Let me just say something. Let me just say something. Look, I'm not saying it's not useful, and yeah. I'm not saying that. If you have you know two or three or more people working on a project, then it probably becomes mandatory. But if you're one guy sitting in a room, you could probably get away without it, or you can because I have been. No, I've no, been you you, you you totally can get away without it. I mean, I'm not disputing that. I mean, I I didn't start using uh, uh, source control till I don't know six years ago or something. Yeah. I mean, you can it, totally, it, get, but it really it really does make a difference to your life. Yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing against it. I'm not saying that other people should do what I do. And yeah. I'm not saying that mine's the best way. I'm just saying that's what I do. <laughs> I'm just saying I use a crappy freeware thing called HapEdit and FTP, and uh, I copy and paste a directory. So you're that's telling me you don't ha you don't use um, test-driven development and you don't have a continuous integration environment set up? No. <laughs> and guess what? I'm My shocked. stuff still doesn't break. <laughs> Sam, what do you think about all of this? Uh, I think uh, you guys basically covered what I was going to say exactly, which is I think for an individual developer by themselves, that uh, copying to a directory on a flash drive or something, uh, or, or uploading it to a website, or, or get it, getting your the source you want to back up somewhere else so it's safe, uh, can work really well. I think two developers or more, you start having real issues, and that's when version control very quickly becomes mandatory. But yeah, for an individual, a lot of things that for a, an individual are overkill are definitely mandatory for multiple developers. Okay, okay. Let me just let you, okay. Let me just talk about Beanstalk. Beanstalk.com. Basically, they have hosted Subversion, right? And what yep. what you can do with there is anytime, is, Beanstalk, is Beanstalk a sponsor? No, Beanstalk isn't a sponsor. Maybe but, we shouldn't talk about it. Look, listen. I know you're feeling hurt now about this whole discussion. I'm feeling hurt. Okay, let me just let me just tell you about Beanstalk. I'll tell you why why I use why I use Beanstalk and why it's just absolutely brilliant. Because it's not just about the source control; it's also about the transport to the end server. So with Beanstalk, you can set up three environments where it will automatically deploy any code that you check into those environments. So uh, Beanstalk by default has staging um, development, sorry, development staging and production environments. So mm -hmm. you can set up with uh, you can tell Beanstalk every time I do a check in automatically sync that with my development server. So that could be, you know, dev.yourdomainname.com. So for example, with Prezo. So you do a check-in, it instantly gets it to the development server. You don't ever think about FTP again. The last time I did used FTP was about six years ago. Yeah, you know, it sounds like good tools. I mean, if, if, if any of these tools don't require me to do extra work, I'll use them. But if it requires me to do a bunch of extra BS, I won't do it. It's like I remember using source There's safe. an upfront cost. Well, I mean, just in terms of learning it. Well, the the up the upfront up cost is you've got to install Tortoise SVN, uh, and you've got to configure, um, you know, the FTP accounts for where it's going to deploy, and you've got to understand the metaphor of source control and why it's useful to you. So it's it's like a it's a mental shift, just like well, when you first tried to understand objects, it required a mental shift. Well, source safe isn't hard to control. I mean, I used to use I mean uh, source control. I used to use source safe back in the and then in the nineties with integrated with Visual Studio. And what used to always frustrate me about it is that you know when I'm writing code, and I'm building software, I'm constantly changing the names of the objects and the hierarchies and the file names. But it would just really not work very well because it wouldn't let you change any of my files. And it was just it doesn't do the merging. You see, this is this is what uh, Subversion does. Um, mm -hmm. Subversion totally deals with that stuff in a seamless way, and it deals with the merging as well. So when you've got, you know, if you yourself change a file or 
you know, you've got two or three people changing a file. There's, you don't need to lock files. You can, but you don't need to. So yeah. it's, it just makes it really easy. It's, it, it is kind of transparent when you're using it in that way. Okay, so let me ask you a question. You, you use Subversion. Now, why don't you use Git or Mercurial? I mean, isn't that like the... Do you just well, the, thing, the reason why I don't use Mercurial, once again, is because, I mean, I've only got one other developer that I'm working with. Now, I, I, know, I know SourceSafe, and I've been working with that for quite a long time. Sorry, not SourceSafe, <laughs> Subversion. I was working with SourceSafe before, and I really hate that. Um, but Mercurial, I, I'm interested in it, but it's just that I'm not at the point of, like, starting a new project and exploring it. But I am interested in it. I'm thinking about it. What about you, Sam? I mean, what have you used? Have um, I, uh, I'm in the Jason camp. Really? Uh, in, in... <laughs> so now I just sound like Ow! a complete. I mean, just I sound like <laughs> a I sound like a horrible proselytizing kind of idiot. Not, not at all. Not at all, Justin. You sound you sound like the sort of pro approach, and we sound like the kind of um, I don't know, the more. Uh, more get it done approach. I don't know, but yeah, I've used Subversion in the past. I've used SourceSafe. Um, I haven't used Git or Mercurial. Okay, so just uh, I'll just just to yeah. close this off, the the benefits of using something like Beanstalk and Subversion are number one, you 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 can keep track of everything that you everything you work on. You can roll back. Number two, it it can act as an automatic transport mechanism to get it onto one of your three servers. Um, but the other thing is it's backup. You know, for your clients, it's peace of mind. It's backup off-site, which is the most important thing on any client project. So even if you are working on your own, even for your own code, you know, like I don't know whether you dump it all onto a CD and post it to some remote location, but we should be doing something like that. We need our code off-site, not only on-site. Are you doing anything like that, Sam? Yep, I'd agree with that. Oh, I'll, t I'll uh, tell you. Yep, I, uh... I'll tell you one other good thing about it. <laughs> Sorry to keep on going on, but basically, let's say your let's say your laptop or your PC gets killed, you know, and and you have to restart. To basically check out that project, you can check it out in an instant, and then you're exactly where you left off. You know, it's very easy to get to get up and running on multiple machines. Right. Yeah, I think the two the two scenarios I worry about are one is my hard disk crashing, and the second one is the house burning down. Yeah. Now. Bidding on a, on a flash drive or a CD will help me if the, the hard drive crashes, but it's not going to help me if the house burns down, um, presumably while I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, so keep, keep getting a copy offsite I think is important. And, and obviously, well, not obviously, but I don't do that as regularly as I do my local backups, but I do do it quite regularly. You don't need to think about backups if you use sub Subversion and, and, and Beanstalk or some other service like that, some other, because it's not just Beanstalk. I mean, there's there's lots of different hosted Subversion services around they the world. They better be sponsoring us with the, the, the promotion you're giving. I'm telling you. I don't want <laughs> to hear, hear about Beanstalk. I'm just saying you don't need to think about backup. You don't need to think about all this stuff that you'll, how much time do you spend every day copying your, what, what do you call that that editor? Yeah. Blap, blap. App edit? Lap edit was it? Hap, H A P. Hap edit. <laughs> Hap edit. How much? How much time do you spend like copying that stuff? Uh, I might make a copy once a day. It takes me what one second to copy a directory. Okay. I just spend zero time thinking about it, and it's never been an issue. That's why I just don't deal with it. I mean, it's like why? It's like here's the thing in software, right? You don't solve problems that aren't problems. You know, if it's not a problem, why do I need to solve it? I have a mountain of code and things that I want to get done. So why am I going to? dork around with some, you know, version control system when it doesn't do anything for me. You know, why am I going to dork around with some complex IEDE when all I'm doing is, um, you know, using a little uh, text editor and using Firebug to debug the code, which is mostly JavaScript, let's say. So I'm just doing 
I'm taking the path. But you you were working on Prezo with. I know I should totally stop talking about this, but you were working on Prezo with another developer, right? Yeah, that's right. But we would only code together. He he was located in Europe, or he is located in Europe, right? But when and um and we're working on another project now. And what happens is he will he will call call me and using Skype or Google Talk. He will log into my desktop using Ultra VNC, and we'll share the desktop. And but all the code is just sitting on my computer. He doesn't co- he doesn't code on his own because he's a full time job. This is stuff that he does at night. Hmm. So he contacts me at night. So it's also on my system. There's never been an issue. Okay. So, but, Jason, uh, could, could I? So, sorry, Jason, could I? Could I just ask what? What's the status with Prezo? What's the like? How long? What, how long ago did it go live? What's the update? Well, let's see. I, I it went Prezo. live like maybe um, I'm thinking a year ago, something like that. Let's see. Oh, I don't even remember now. Um, but we ran out of uh, we ran out of funding, and we never started charging. We we promised we worked on it too long. And uh, it too close to the end of the of our of our capital by the time we we launched it, and then we didn't feel like we could charge then because we really hadn't bulletproofed it in terms of uh, you know having a lot of users you you know spend time on it, even though there was very few bugs that people described. But um, and then of course yeah, Google was releasing this for free, so essentially we just kind of ran out of steam. So it's it's running live, you know. And, and Jason, remember that one time when you lost two months worth of work because you weren't using source control. Right. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. So, um, I, you know, it's live. You got 20 some odd thousand people have signed up and a lot of, I guess about 40 or 50 people sign up a day to use it. But right now nobody's paying. And I think that what we're going to have to do at this point is either do a fundraiser. Um, I think this is what we are going to do. We're going we're to do a fundraiser and send emails out to all the users and say, listen, you know, if any, if everybody wants to donate a little bit of money, put a little money, let's see if we can keep this thing running. We can raise ten grand, and then we'll keep this thing running for six months. And then maybe the people who put in money that'll buy them use of it for a certain period of time. Beyond that, and uh, anyone else, we're going to have to start charging for anything but say a, a very simple use of like maybe a single presentation. But otherwise, I can't pay for the servers because the server is just getting crushed under the weight of all the users. I have to constantly restart it because it just gets killed. Um, just a final thing I'll say, which I don't know, might be an idea to do at the end of every podcast, just a, an idea, is as a long prediction, I will predict that in 10 years, <laughs> being the wonderful about Facebook, we'll be the apocalypse. But we will ten, no longer exist. <laughs> in 10 years, what? In, in, 10, can you, uh, in 10 years, Facebook will have disappeared, but Google will still be right now. That's my long prediction. Okay, so what we're going to do is at the end of every uh, episode, we have a guest. They have to make some really crazy prediction. Okay. I like it. So that's your prediction. I like that prediction. Face, because Facebook is trendy. Google is not. Google's a utility. Facebook's a trend, just like MySpace or friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I agree with Sam on that one. By, by the way, Justin, I think um, we've got a market for two T-shirts from you. One is a T-shirt that says "Businesses are meanies," and another one that says "Techies are bitches," which I think are both T-shirt T-shirt worthy quotes from you. Okay, so uh, just to wrap up the show, if you have anything um, you'd like us to discuss or any questions for us, go to drop.io forward slash texting, where you can post a message and leave us or leave us a voicemail. And um, we'd be happy to talk about it on the show. Um, I thank you very much, Sam, for joining us. No worries. Thank you very much. And good luck with uh, querycell.com uh, and quiznightchief.com. 
And Thanks very much. And Jason? That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Out. Okay. All right, guys. <laughs> Great. That was oh. fun. Thanks a lot, Sam. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and I've got to say that the music, the in- intro and outro music you've got is fantastic. Oh, you like that? Well, you know that uh, you know that's actually um, uh, Justin wrote and uh, produced and, and, and played that. That was him. That's him singing. That was his song. Are you for real? Yeah. Yeah. Really? He, tell him about it. Wow. Well, well done. That's awesome. Uh, I don't know what to say about it. I used to He's be in a band <laughs> when I was, you know, young and thin. And well, I'm totally bopping my head. That's that's a catchy song. Oh, I like it I too. Yeah, you know, when we were first coming up with a song, uh, trying to figure out what we're going to do about music, and I said, we well, need to go to one of these sites where they can get like some free Creative Commons music or something for the intro and outro. And it's like, oh, no, we'll get one of my songs. And I'm like, oh, God. You're going to the banjo playing some music or something. I mean, give me a break. And I'm like, oh, how am I going to tell him his music sucks, hurting his feelings, you know? Yeah. And, and so I was just wincing, just going, oh, I know this is going to be terrible because he's going he's, he's gonna, to he's gonna really love this song and I'm going to have to break his heart. And then he plays it. And I'm like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Well, I, can I, do thought, that. I thought it was a commercial song. I thought I recognized it from somewhere. So, no, good, good work. I guess what I should probably do is um, put all those, those tracks from, from the Money Penny days on the TechZing website for anyone to download them and, and do whatever they want with. Yeah, you should fit some kind of. Is that, what was, the name of your, what was that name of your uh, your band, Money Penny? Yeah, Money Penny. Yeah. <laughs> That's I said the, the Bond girl. Yeah. <laughs> Money Penny. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So. <laughs>